Welcome back to another episode of Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Adrian Redlich, the CEO of Merrick's Capital. Merrick's is a specialist in hard asset investment, i.e. commercial real estate, agriculture, and infrastructure. Keen listeners to the podcast will recognize Adrian as featuring in episode 33 and 61, where we've spoken about the Partners Fund, where Merrick's provides private debt and lending solutions, mainly across commercial real estate. In this episode, we're talking to Adrian about a newly launched investment strategy they have, the Agricultural Credit Fund, that lends money across agricultural opportunities in Australia and New Zealand. An area that Merrick's believes is characterized by limited competition and strong macroeconomic tailwinds. Please remember to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. This podcast is not, nor is it designed to be specific advice. People are encouraged to receive advice prior to making any investments. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Adrian Redlich, welcome back to Inside the Rope. David, great to be back again. Well, um, I think it would be helpful, although I think you've been on the podcast uh, twice in two separate episodes uh, around the Partners Fund. Um, perhaps it would be just a good update if you could remind the clients who you are, what you do, uh, maybe just touch on that Partners Fund and then we can get cracking and talk about uh, the Agricultural Credit Fund, which we want to discuss today. Absolutely. Um, so we're a, a multi-billion dollar asset manager based in Melbourne. Um, our predominant focus is on hard assets, so commercial real estate, agriculture, um, infrastructure, power plants. Um, and the core focus of the business is providing credit or loans to uh, that asset class in Australia and New Zealand. And so the Partners Fund, which is our diversified fund in the lending space um, has you know, has been active for quite a few years now um, and provides loans to commercial real estate, power plants and agriculture. And, and agriculture is approximately a third of that diversified fund. Um, and so that fund has been in existence now for five years, but Merrick's has been in existence for nearly 15, focusing on the, the space. And really, the, the Partners Fund and the agricultural credit opportunity um, has emerged over the last five, six years as the Australian banking system has pulled back to focus on certain segments of lending um, and found asset lending um, more challenging. And, and we and a, a few of our competitors have begun to step into the breach. And I think as you've, you know, as we've talked about before, and I know you've, you've spoken to other proponents, um, the norm in, in the US, in the UK and Europe is for non-bank lending to provide 30 to 50% of loans in an economy in Australia where we're probably halfway towards that, that end, end goal. And why do you think it is that Australian lenders uh, and mainly the banks have shied away from uh, agricultural lending? Well, I think that the Australian banks really crept to a point of oligopoly status or dominance um, from the late 80s all the way through to 2015. 
And then APRA um, really set on a pathway to sort of require them to pull back to a more conservative position because banks borrow 12 to $13 of, um, of every $14 they lend. So they're highly leveraged. They operate in a space where they have to be increasingly conservative, whereas the benefit that non-bank lenders such as, uh, such as Merrick's have, who are lending money on behalf of ourselves and, and the likes of Coda clients, we're lending equity. So we take a view that we want to be conservative around the asset value and protecting the capital, but we don't have to service a highly leveraged balance sheet. So the major point of difference is APRA and regulators are requiring banks to be conservative in servicing their balance sheet. So the whole unwinding of their own leverage um, isn't required, whereas in our case, we just need to make sure the implied value of each asset is there. We're able to be a bit more patient, a bit more flexible, because we're not borrowing money to get our return. We're just offering other other um, elements to our loan, such as serviceability of interest or time um, to generate our return. So really it's been APRA pulling, you know, pulling the banks back, then um, particularly in the case of agriculture, the likes of um, Royal, you know, the, the uh, Royal Commission, and others into the banking practices, how they were forced by regulators really to sort of pull away from farming to protect their own balance sheet. Whereas you know, non-bank lenders, again, you know, we have more patient capital, more flexible capital, and so it allows us to be asset lenders as opposed to cash flow lenders. So inherently, what does that mean? We lend against the value of a farm um, with a, a lens on making sure we have lots of equity buffer between what we lend um, and the end value of the farm, whereas the banking system requires them to have lots of constant cash flow to meet their own um, leverage balance sheet needs. And I take it you're senior secured first ranking uh, lender there. Absolutely. So you know we're, we are the bank essentially, but without the bank leverage balance sheet, um, that's the nature of what we're doing. Um, and interestingly in, in the agricultural space, Similar to what we do in commercial real estate and other sectors, we are you know, we hold the mortgage over the farm, um, the other assets of the farmer, and often their water rights and um, a general security deed on their business as well. Adrian, most people will think of uh, farming and agriculture. They will immediately think of uh, drought and commodity prices and cyclicality, and all of that can equal some risk. Um, I, I dare say most high net worth individuals uh, and, and families have had some sort of first degree touch with, um, you know, being exposed to that and, and or, or seeing some negative outcomes in that area. How do you go about managing that type of risk in a portfolio of loans like this across agricultural assets? Yeah, we've, we've experienced that firsthand. We own um, a series of farm management businesses. And if you go back to the drought of 0708, when we first began Merricks, we were very active in owning and running farms. Um, and we've been through several iterations of that. We also have one of Australia's biggest commodity trading funds, where on behalf of some of the world's biggest institutions, we trade agricultural commodities, futures and physical commodities such as wheat and corn and soybeans around the world. So we live and breathe 
those the cyclical nature of the the supply and demand, um, the weather impasse, um, and it's exactly the reason why we've retreated from retreated from running farms and rather providing credit because when you are lending at a 60% loan to value, which is sort of the approximate leverage level of our loans, there's a significant equity buffer. We have um, farming entities, families, corporates, and others who are our borrowers. Um, it's their responsibility to run the farms day to day. Um, and so we've got a huge equity buffer in there on each individual loan, which gives us a lot of protection. Um, the second element is really trying to have a diversified portfolio. So we're lending from horticulture and dairy in the South Island of New Zealand all the way through to cattle stations in the northern part of WA. Um, we, have, you know, we have commodity diversification and we have geographic diversification across the portfolio. And so um, that mix means that we're not really subject to any individual um, commodity exposure or to any individual weather pattern or geography. So there is, there is diversification, there's a very healthy equity buffer. But really at the nub of it, David, you know, you're really um, pointing out the difference of what we do to most others that will give your investors access to agriculture. And that is we're a senior secured lender, a much lower risk position in the capital stack um, versus taking on the ownership of farmland. And the beauty of, of private debt at the moment, which is an area I know Coda is, is highly focused, is the returns are outsized relative to the risk. So whilst we're in a much lower risk position, we think we're earning equity-like returns, you know, earning 8 to 10% type returns across the portfolio um, at 8 9% above the risk-free rate. That's equity returns all day long, but yet we're in a fixed income position. So we, we really are attracted to it. We've retreated from trying to run farms because we think this is just a great opportunity and there's a key scarcity of capital. And Adrian, I, I see from your material that you're really diversified, and as you're saying there, across the different types of agriculture in terms of cropping and forestry, uh, dairy, uh, horticulture, viticulture, livestock and poultry. Um, are there any, any areas of, of agriculture you won't go? There are for a number of reasons. So we, you know, we move very you know, slowly into forestry where we don't um, harvesting of sort of native forests. We avoid um, the certain parts of aquaculture, which we've tended to avoid. Um, a lot of those are on the basis of sort of environmental grounds, so ESG overlays that we've tended to avoid some sectors. Um, but you know, as a, as a general rule, we're looking for diversity um, across across sectors. Um, but it's really more that sort of governance overlay, um, as opposed to you know, as opposed to a um, perception of one commodity being better than uh, and others. One thing we've learned, being very active in the, the commodity cycle, is generally when a commodity looks hot or strong, um, you're often only two three years away from the next supply glut. Um, and the downturn. So, yeah, it's very it's challenging to pick the uh, the commodity cycles. So, in some ways, we prefer to go where the commodity cycle is often weaker or softer. Um, it can you know, it, it generally means you're um, on the, at the beginning of an upswing. Um, also means you're often getting better returns for the uh, the loan that you're making. So, you know, we're finding a balance. 
Um, and so that's really running a portfolio is, is key. Um, historically in private debt, when individuals have accessed that, you know, some syndicator has brought them an individual loan and they may have participated in their individual loan, which has been attracted to. But I think that's much riskier in agriculture because you are exposed to the vagaries of, of weather in one particular region and one particular commodity. So a diversified portfolio is, is always the better way to go. Um, but having said that, we'll always have pockets of concentration because there tends to be a scarcity of capital or need in particular areas or subsectors at one time. And so that's where we tend to see you know, an increase in demand um, in pockets. And so the portfolio tends to, to swing a little bit. You know, it might end up with 20, 30% exposure to a, set, a subsector at any one time because that's where the need is. And when a sector is running hot, generally there's lots of money flowing from banks and, and other areas that um, probably non-bank lending is not where they're going to source that capital. You talk about a glut, and I was up in uh, far north Queensland recently just to see the uh, oversupply of avocados filtering through to New South Wales and now buying them at Harris Farm for a dollar versus four or five and a little bit more uh, a, a year or so ago. So it's interesting to watch that. Um, what What's your view of the macroeconomic trends for Australia, Australia's agricultural sector? So the backdrop has been very, a very positive one in, in recent years. So short term, we've had great rainfall across the country. Um, and so dams are full, water allocations are good. Um, and so the general weather conditions have been supportive as a, as a general rule. Um, the second aspect is in the broad acre cropping. So where we grow wheat and barley and, and canola, we have very strong global prices um, in livestock, we have very strong global pricing. Um, and generally in vegetables, on the back of COVID, we actually had a real uptick and, and strong pricing. Um, similarly, in dairy, we've had strong pricing. So you know, when you look at that general theme, we've had good weather and good commodity prices. So you, you're looking at an environment where equity returns have been extremely good. Um, combined with lower interest rates, you've had a, a significant uptick in, in land prices. So We've got a backdrop of a very strong sector. Um, their ability to service debt is, is good um, and the asset prices are robust. And so we enter into those with a, you know, into these loans with a forward look that our borrowers, um, who we generally lend to for between one and three years, so it's not, they're not long-term loans. We like to lend shorter. Um, the backdrop is good. But we do take, you know, enter it with a note of caution that, as I said at the outset, we know... You know, the next drought, the next downturn, climatic, um, potentially you know, global warming and other things can have an impact. And so you always want to have a healthy buffer um, in, in what you do. And I think that is, um, is you know, the real opportunity that we're afforded. You know, we count in excess of 50 funds um, globally and locally who are buying farmland or the you know, agriculture. Um, we see very few competitors who are specialised in lending to agriculture. So the key tenant of how we approach investing in any sector is looking to be in a place where there's a scarcity of capital, to have fewer competitors. If you have fewer competitors, you tend to have, you, know, you tend to get a slightly better return. So you can cheat risk a little bit. So there's clearly a scarcity of capital um, that we look at. But 
the second element of you know of our business and our practice is really that ability to execute, and that is you know, an ability to understand or hedge commodity exposure, ability to step into a loan. Unlike the banks, you know we have the ability to step in and, and run a farm. Banks won't do that. We have teams of people that can step in if there's a problem with the borrower and, and run those farms. Um, so understanding both that peak of commodity cycle and the risk, but also the ability to step in and and to execute is, is important. Um, and so I think that from a micro perspective, you know, we're looking at good conditions, but also an eye on you know, the next risk that's around the corner, that you know, how can we mitigate it and how can we deal with it? And so that, that's very much the micro story. I think the macro long-term story can, does continue to be one where you know, Australia is you know, one of the major exporters of food to uh, the Asian region. We're not necessarily on a global basis one of the biggest producers of food. We just have a small population, so we have a big exportable surplus that makes us um, interesting to the rest of the world. We also have a a really good brand in terms of the quality of of food products coming out of this part of the world do attract a premium. We're seen as sort of high quality um, and clean food, so which is, is good. So that's clearly you know, that's clearly the message that lots of people are selling for agriculture. Um, the one that I personally am the most attracted to is I think in this low interest rate environment, um, agricultural assets and land um, could serve as a, a good ballast if we get an inflationary surge. Um, I think the price of commodities will go up faster than interest rates will pick up if we have a, a commodity. Uh, so if we have an inflationary surge, which you know, is obviously a fear that we all have um, that you know, could be the backlash of, of central bank activity that we're seeing. Um, it's not our base case, but agricultural land, I think, will be defended by the fact the output from that land um, being commodities really can rise very quickly. And so therefore, defend the value of our loans um, in an inflationary world. Whereas I'm not sure that most assets will have that same defensive posture um, in inflationary world. So I think it's, I think it's diver- it's a it's a true diversifier in, in that sense. It moves to a different beat, um, and so yeah, we think the backdrop's pretty good from from adding it to a portfolio from that perspective. And Adrian, you said that. Um you have the ability to step in. Do you see that as one of the reasons why there's not a lot of competition in the market? You know, i.e. are the big four, for instance, the big retail banks who are built on home loans, uh, are they, do they have a reluctance to lend to rural because they don't want the optics of kicking the third generation off in a current affair at the gate when they're, when they're taking a third generation family off a property? Um, is that a factor why there's not a, not as much competition as there may otherwise would be? That's definitely a fallout from the Royal Commission um, that was held a number of years ago and the Four Corners episodes and the like. It's just not palatable going into a sector which is cyclical. Um, so therefore, if they suddenly fall foul of banking interest covenants or coverage, that for them to step in is just not a possibility. So I think that's the, that is an element. Um, but having said that, you know, the Australian banks have 70 to $80 billion of exposure in Australia and, and a similar amount in New Zealand. Um, it, is a, you know, it is an important segment to them. We don't see them you know, exiting the sector. We just see the impost being imposed by Reserve Bank of New Zealand um, and APRA 
um, meaning they have to differentiate where they can lend to, but then also their willingness to deal with a, trans, a transitionary asset, you know, one that's that's um, dealing with you know basically a couple of things. Either wants a farmer wants to grow, so they're sort of unlike yeah you know, they're not willing to necessarily provide that growth capital where they see some risk or short term cash flow coverage. Um, they're struggling to to lend to a farmer who they already bank who wants to buy the neighbour, which is the traditional growth pattern. Um, because again, it, it's concentration level. Farmers are becoming quite big, um, and I think also there's the element to say where banks want to exit something um, because they don't want to step in, they don't want to actively manage. And there's a simple reason for that. If you look at bank margins, they make a one and a half to two percent net interest margin on a loan. That doesn't allow them um, the margin to actively manage an asset. Banks are running enormous portfolios and their whole principle is on average, things will work out, they'll be fine. Our model's the complete opposite. You know, we have 50 loans across our business and our portfolio. We charge a management fee and higher rates where we are going to be actively managing and working very closely with our borrowers to make sure everything's in order to risk mitigate our loans. And so we're getting paid to be much more active um, to solve problems and step in if there is a problem. It's a different business model. So banks don't want you know, want complexity. They don't get paid for it. Um, we're getting paid to solve any complexity if it should happen. And fortunately for us and investors, it doesn't happen too often. But if it does, um, we're not running from it and saying, hey, we don't get paid to deal with it. We do. And Adrian, where does the expertise in the agricultural side of things come from? Uh, you know, the history of Merrick's and, and the strong track record in uh, lending over commercial and residential and construction um, and, and the key capabilities being obviously displayed there. And, and you've said you've got a history in the agricultural area, but you know, for instance, do you have agronomists on the payroll and people who can go in and say, yes, this farm is worth X because the output of it can be Y? Um, where, where does that come into play with the solution? Yeah, absolutely. Every asset class we're in, um, we have people that can run the physical asset um, and also trade uh, you know, the produce that comes out of those physical assets. That's, that's the point of differentiation from us. You know, from 2007 onwards, when we bought farms, you know, we had teams of agronomists, farm managers, um, and others who could deal with things. Um, as an example, you know, we own an interest in Southern Cross Farms, which is based in the Sunraysia district. We have a stake in Ace Dairy. Um, we have relationships with many other farm groups that can step in across um, that horticultural sector, the dairy sector, um, beef sector. Look at it, our advisory board in, in agriculture. Um, you know, we have people such as Phil Turnbull, who's the CEO of Apple and Pear Australia, um, grew up you know, Turnbull Orchards, were one of the biggest fruit growers in that um, in that Shepparton region, Ardmona region. Um, Matt O'Connor, um, O'Connor Beef runs you know, one of the biggest independent abattoirs. So there's a, there's a series of people and an ecosystem around us to support it, but equally internally, you know, our team. Um, Dan O'Donoghue, who runs our agri-origination, you know, grew up on a farm, um, has lived and breathed it, um, has actually 
prior to joining us, um, we was working with FTI um, and prior to that, McGrath Nickel, where he specialised in workouts um, in the farming sector. So not only do we have people who, industry leaders around us um, and that connection and um, that advice, we have teams of people internally who have managed farms, but we also have teams of people who have actually worked out troubled farms in the past. Um, so we, we've seen the, you know, the, the full gamut. And then, of course, our commodity trading team you know, are living and breathing the agricultural cycles. And I, I think that's an important point of difference. Um, many lenders just look at the asset value. We look at globally supply demand and how the revenue line, meaning commodity prices, is going to shift and change and take that into the context of, of our lending book. And Adrian, would you be able to give the listeners uh, as a bit of a flavour, an example of a loan that you would think would be uh, typical of this portfolio uh, and the fund that you're building, just to give it some colour in terms of you know the loan size, the organisation it was loaned to, uh, and, and the parameters around that. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe I'll step you through a couple a couple of examples, um, sure. David. So. We, we're financing um, the development of a, a major cherry orchard um, outside of Wanaka in New Zealand, a business called Cherry Global. Um, the borrower was extremely well credentialed, had built a, um, amongst other things, a major apple business, and that apple business was sold. Um, they saw the opportunities in the cherry business to buy established orchards, but expand on that, um, and particularly in that, that region, the Wanaka region, the timing of harvest really meets the needs of the, the sort of Chinese New Year cherries. Whereas if you look in Australia, we tend to get Christmas cherries. New Zealand, you get that, that Chinese New Year market. And so whilst banks were happy to lend against the existing orchards, they did, they did not want to fund the expansion. And part of the reason they didn't want to fund the expansion was just the, the two, three, four years to get to critical cash flow whilst there was no doubt the value of the land was there, the value of the asset was there, just the cash flow to service debt um, wasn't, wasn't going to be as strong while the trees were growing. And so um, that growth um, opportunity was sort of the classic, classic need or the classic borrower that comes to see us. Um, so it's one such example. Um, another example is the, um, we financed the acquisition of Dennington Milk Factory in just outside of Warrnambool. In Victoria, <coughs> excuse me, um, Dennington was uh, an asset that was sold by um, Fonterra, so you know the world's biggest dairy company. Um, they had a concentration of assets. They didn't want to sell to one of their big competitors, um, such as a, a Saputo, for obvious competitive reasons. They wanted to sell to an independent. Um, we backed that independent. Fonterra was, was willing to sell at a very attractive price because they didn't want to sell to a competitor. Um, and hence, you know, it was inherently, <coughs> sorry, David, I'm just going to have a sip of water just to uh, get the frog out of the throat. Um, and so we were able to lend um, at a 20% of replacement value um, to a really well-credentialed dairy trading company um, to get that, you know, to take on that, that Dennington factory. Um, you know, we see that Dennington factory is the bones to, to actually creating some advanced nutritional dairy products um, that really adds a lot of value. So it was buy the asset, um, add to it in terms of value add, um, but it was, it was really about transition of ownership 
um, is one such example. And in some cases, we take you know we take assets that have been um, non-performing in, in bank land and, and help restructuring them. And so sometimes the bank will take a, a discount um, and will recapitalise those those with their, with equity. Um, and so we've done that in the case of Harmony Beef, which is one of Australia's biggest Wagyu producers. Um, that is, you know, the predominance of their assets is in southern New South Wales, northern Victoria. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a classic case where, you know, sort of there's a restructuring element to it. So I think, you know, there's there's a number of examples there. Cherry Global being just the traditional growth asset, um, growing trees takes takes time, but it adds each year of growth adds value. And so your the underlying value um, is enhanced. The second is where there was a, a transitionary asset needed to change ownership. Um, and so it was, you know, there was clearly a value add story. Um, and the third is where something had been, you know, in, in one of the major banks, um, it just didn't suit their balance sheet. They didn't want to provide more working capital, yet we saw a great pathway. We, we you know, several years ago, when we first looked at Harmony Beef and wanted to be active in there, our supply-demand analysis around beef and the price of cattle in Australia was very, um, we were very optimistic, and we thought, you know, this is a great place to be. And, and you know, look, it doesn't always work out. In this case, I think the price of cattle and beef has gone way beyond where we could have even expected, um, and so you know, it's been the great provision of, of debt. But look, ultimately, all these things come back to lending at a 50 to 60 percent, and sometimes 65 percent loan to value. Um, is not necessarily a hard decision in terms of making the assessment is, is there the value to protect our loan? Um, the harder piece is often, you know, creating the loan structure, the documentation, um, the securitisation of it um, you know, is a process. And it's not as simple as just buying some bonds or shares that are listed. And, and so that's often the barrier um, as opposed to establishing the value. Every loan we do, there's an independent valuation. So a third-party independent valuer comes in and values our loans. We value our loans um, periodically along the way. And so there's an independent support of, of that um, deeply in-the-money valuation of our loans. Terrific. Adrian, I think that's been a very good uh, summation of the opportunity and uh, you know the attractive returns, as you say, equity-like returns on a fixed interest product uh, is certainly something I think continues to interest a lot of people in the market. Um, thanks for your time and thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.